Good morning. Good to see you all. If you will join me in our gospel reading for this morning, it comes from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, can be found on page 79 in your pew Bible. Will you join me in this reading? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Children, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from here, from there to us. The rich man said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so they will not also come into this torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will Repent, Abraham said to him. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, it's funny that the word gospel... The word we use to talk about the central core message of Christianity translates to good news. Because I'm not sure about you, but I read a lot of stories in Scripture that don't seem particularly good. Am I right? Anybody? Anybody read some rough stories in Scripture? Maybe just now we may have read one? Okay. And even when I do find a story that could qualify as good news, it rarely feels like good news for everyone across the board. It seems like often there's at least one loser, and at the very least there's a possible interpretation that makes a story that at some time may have felt good or transformational or freeing suddenly a lot more complicated. And when this happens, we have to reevaluate, is this story actually a good story? And if not, if it's tragic or violent, if it leaves people out, or if it's harmful, can we still make sense of it in light of the good news of the gospel, that the God we know in Jesus is a God of grace who wants to transform the world? One of the first times I really had to wrestle with the complicated, hard stories in Scripture that didn't jive with my understanding of the good news of the gospel was when I first started asking deeper questions about the story of the Exodus during my adult life. Like many privileged white Christians like myself, I grew up reading the story of the Israelites being freed from Egyptian captivity as a story about God's chosen people, specifically, I thought, people like me, being freed from the secular forces of evil. I assumed that a direct line could be drawn 
from the people of Israel to my pious little Christian family in rural Oregon, and I was just grateful that God had cared enough about me to free those Israelites all those years ago so that I could have my quiet time with the Bible every morning and youth group every Wednesday night. But then things got more complicated. I went to graduate school I began opening myself up to new perspectives. I started reading theologians, specifically black theologians like James Cone, who some of you have read in the book studies with me throughout the year. And it was there that I quickly began to learn that the book of Exodus had been understood by Christians of African descent as a biblical paradigm for thinking about slavery in the United States. As a way of showing how God's chosen people actually had more in common with those who had been abused treated as chattel, killed, dehumanized, than with many of the safe, healthy, and well-to-do Christians like me. And to be honest, that was a pretty tough adjustment for me. It was tough first because it forced me to reevaluate what makes this story a good one. It wasn't good because it was communicating some abstract, universal message that all of God's people will escape suffering as long as we just live according to God's purposes— It was good because, according to Cone, it was evidence that God cared about freeing actual slaves. Israelite slaves in Egypt and slaves of African descent in America. It was evidence that God liberates, that God frees those who are not free. That's what makes this story a good story. The second reason I had a hard time adjusting to how black theologians were interpreting the Exodus passage was because in their telling, me and my people could not be so easily identified with God's chosen as I had previously assumed. In Cone's telling, the church traditions I grew up in, the white church traditions that used the Bible to uphold slavery and convict leasing and mass incarceration had more in common with the Egyptians with Pharaoh than with the Israelites. It was pretty hard to stomach. In fact, I think it might be hard to stomach for similar reasons that it's hard to stomach the story we read today about Lazarus and the rich man. You see, this is another story where God or Jesus has to make choices about who receives favor and who judgment, who's within the bounds of the kingdom of heaven and who's outside wishing they could get in. Who is chosen and who is not chosen? I don't know about you, but I have verses 22 and 23 echoing in my mind where it says, The poor man Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, but in Hades where he was tormented. This really messes with our God is love, God is inclusion, God is compassion narrative that many of us want to claim as a part of our Christian faith. We read this passage and can't help but ask whether whether there is a limit to God's grace for people like the rich man. Is there a point, we might wonder, where God says, enough with you, you've shown who you are. Your affluence is an affront to me. Your repentance is too late. For those of us, like myself, whose experience is a little bit more like the rich man than like Lazarus, the poor beggar with boils standing outside the gates of the wealthy. We hope it's not too late for us. We pray not. But at the very least, in our most childlike moments, we might wonder because Jesus seems pretty firm in the telling of this parable. 
We might wonder, am I close to that line? If I continue living as I am, will I be rewarded like Lazarus? Or at the very least, will I at least not be punished like the rich man? And I think throughout Christian history, there's been a number of people who have wanted answers to these kinds of questions. Not simply because they were afraid of punishment, but because they also wanted to experience every ounce of comfort they possibly could while still remaining in good standing with God. How much comfort can I live with and still be given the opportunity to repent at the very last minute? In fact, in the Middle Ages, this passage was often used as a motivator for the rich to give alms or a kind of charity that would be given to the poor, often an image of Lazarus surrounded by dogs licking his wounds while he's covered in rags would be placed above a poor box where people would drop alms as a way of motivating the rich to not follow the path of the rich man in this story, but instead to leave something as they go about their day. As Justo Gonzalez says, this parable was used as a means for the rich to be consoled, knowing that they would, of course, be rewarded in heaven. And I don't know about you, but when I read the story, I find it surprising that it would be used to console the rich because there's not much consolation here for that. It seems to me Lazarus is the one who finds comfort and favor. And ultimately, the parable is reminiscent of Jesus' earlier saying in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Whether it's the Middle Ages or whether it's now, charity is often a way that those with means remain comfortable while doing what they can to still be seen as pious. It's what the rich man does when, as one commentator puts it, he fails to recognize that he's partly to blame for Lazarus' suffering. That for as long as his house has gates, he will have to ignore the suffering man who is not allowed inside of them. Because facing Lazarus would mean facing that he has more than what he needs. Because facing Lazarus would mean realizing that he may be closer to the point of no return than he thought. Closer to crossing the line and receiving only God's wrath and Abraham's anger for making peace with a world that would allow suffering to continue like this. Some of us know what it's like to walk close to a dangerous line in life. Maybe we were even those kids who constantly kind of pushed the limits just to kind of see what we could get away with. I wouldn't say that was my personality type. As may not be surprising to many of you, I was the kind of kid that went to school and tried to create new rules that I could follow just so I felt like a good person. Having said that, I wasn't always the same at home. and I definitely wasn't always the same with my sister. And I remember that my sister was in a season where she was bothering me a lot and I felt like I was getting picked on. And one day my mom decided she needed to run some errands and she invited my sister and I along. But the problem was that I was the youngest, so I always had to sit in the, behind the passenger seat in the back row. And I found this frustrating and unjust, and so I decided to do something about it. So when my sister got in, we started to drive. And it started small. I kind of need the back of her chair, you know, so she was kind of shaking the whole drive to where we were going. She played it cool, acted like it wasn't bothering her. I started kind of flicking her ear and poking her in the shoulder. I would hit the headrest as cool as could be. No response. It was killing me. If anyone's ever been a younger sibling, there's nothing worse than trying to annoy your older sibling and they act like it's not affecting you. So 
I did what any younger brother who was being ignored would do. I reached into my mouth. I grabbed the piece of gum I had been chewing. Any idea where this is headed? Ideas, thoughts, maybe? And I reached for her and I placed it ever so delicately in her hair. And I waited for her to notice. It was magical. Um, so number one, she noticed immediately. It didn't take very long at all. She was very upset. Number two, it became very clear where the line was in this instance, and it was in the putting the gum in her hair. Number three, I'm pretty sure I've not been forgiven for this, but what I would like to say is she had to cut her hair very short after that happened the same day, and ever since then, she has kept her hair fairly short, so I kind of feel like I helped, if I'm honest. <laughs> that's, that's how I've kind of rationalized it. If she comes to visit, you can ask her if she feels that way, but... Either thing, one thing is very true about this experience with my sister, right? And that is that I didn't find out where the line was until I crossed it. Until it was too late. It was once she was angry with me and had no interest in hearing my side of the story. Like the rich man, as she yelled at me like only an older sister can, all I could think was to make the same request that the rich man does in this story. Please, I beg you, just let me go tell the rest of my family not to do what I did, right? Let me go and save them so that they don't follow my ways. The truth is I had plenty of time while I rode in that car to think about where my actions were headed. I could have reversed course. I could have resisted the urge to get the biggest response from my sister without suffering her legitimate and angry response. And similarly, the rich man in this story has a lifetime to respond to Lazarus before suffering in agony beneath the flames of Hades. It's easy for readers, I think, to, to read this passage and to focus on the punishment or what seems like the lack of grace that God is giving the rich man in this story. But in doing so, we fail to realize that God gives the affluent multiple chances to find corrective in this life, as other stories from the book of Luke show us. Biblical scholar John Koenig says, Luke's account of Zacchaeus, who gives away half of his goods to the poor, shows that Jesus allows for the possibility of a major life change by the rich. So does the promise by Jesus that well-to-do people will be blessed at the resurrection if they host banquets for the poor and the disabled. Also worth noting is the rich man in Luke chapter 18, though saddened by Jesus' command to distribute his wealth to the poor, he nevertheless remains in Jesus' company for further instruction. In Jesus' view, repentance and radical amendment of life among the rich occur only rarely, but they can happen because all things are possible with God. Even the parable itself, I think, seems to indicate that the rich have every opportunity to learn the error of their ways. As the text says, the rich man said, Then, Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have, four, I have five brothers, that he may warn them so they will not come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Abraham might be teaching us a meaningful lesson about what it means to walk a life of discipleship with Jesus. I know for me, growing up, when I tried throughout life to figure out how Christ would want me to live, it often kind of felt like a guessing game. Like I was supposed to try some things I saw other church people do or repeat some phrases that sounded like things that were pretty Jesus-y. 
But the truth is, for those of us who want to live a life of love for God and love for our neighbors, we also have Moses and the prophets to teach us. We have the life of Jesus. We don't have to guess all the time. Some of us might even feel like we have the voices of modern day prophets and contemporary saints to guide the way. And we should ask ourselves, how am I getting myself into a rhythm of learning from the voices whom God is using in order to refine my own actions? To correct whatever path may actually be leading me away from the kingdom of heaven instead of toward it. I think a lot of us who read this story probably assume it's a parable about money. It's a story that's meant to tell us something about what it means to be faithful to God and to the poor. How to make a world right that leaves some so destitute and some so affluent. And that is a possible interpretation and I think a correct one. But it also seems to me that beyond being a practical case study about money, it's also a story about love. Because this isn't a parable just about what to do with your money as a person devoted to Jesus. It's a story about what it means to love money more than anything else. What it does to your heart when you're passionate about something that can never love you back, that can never satisfy you, and that can never care for your neighbor unless you part with it yourself. I just returned from a trip to visit my nephew for the first time this week. Caden Omari is a beautiful, as you can see up on the screen, beautiful and healthy baby who is living in Orlando with my sister Anna and my brother-in-law Urshan. He's about three weeks old. Parents couldn't be happier. But when I returned, I had a thought that kept coming to mind after spending two or three days with them after seeing my sister, who I had known for years and years and years, but never in this particular role as parent. And the thought that I kept thinking was that if you want to know what love means, go watch new parents with their child. I saw Anna and Urshan be attentive to Caden's every minuscule shift. No sound went unchecked. No movement went unnoticed. I saw them protect him by checking every locked door each night before they went to bed. I saw them meet each and every physical need they could so that he knows what it means to feel healthy and safe throughout his life. We are attentive to what we love. We protect what we love. We nurture what we love. And when we love money, it becomes impossible to offer these same things to the neighbors who are suffering right outside our door. For a long time, Christians everywhere have read this passage and asked, can the rich repent? Will God have mercy on them? Will God's grace run out for them? And the truth is, Like all those Christians throughout time, we don't really know what will happen at the end of days. But what we do know is that for as long as those with wealth are on this earth, the path of Zacchaeus remains. The opportunity to part with what we have, to reorganize the world so that my health doesn't have to mean someone else's sickness. We are not called to love money. 
We are called to love the one who lays at the gates covered in sores. We're called to love those whose multi-week stay in the hospital will leave them bankrupt. We're called to love those who are released from prison without anything to restart their life with. We're called to love the ones who, as the text says, long to satisfy their hunger, even with what simply falls from the rich man's table. Creating a world where this is not their only fate. May it be so. Amen. You join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. We pray that you guide us on the path of discipleship, not a disembodied discipleship that focuses on how many times we pray or how many Bible verses we read. The discipleship that puts something materially at stake for us that is willing to part with the abundance that you have given and that wants to reorder a world that seems to continue to leave certain folks outside the gates. We lift these things up to you. We pray that you open our eyes. In your name we pray. Amen.